Hello, and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for people to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Well, hello, Grace. Hi, Alison. How are you? I'm very well. I've been listening to a podcast. Another one? Another one. (laughs) What about that? Actually, I was always listening to it. It's probably the first podcast I ever listened to, the Guilty Feminist podcast. And today, they well, this week, they were talking about shame, which reminded me of Joy Allen's interview, because she said that shame was the thing that is most affecting women. What's that question we asked, the last question we asked? (laughs) What are the the most important? important issue I don't remember (laughs) most important issue affecting Christian women today and Joy Mm. Allen said shame anyway so the whole episode of the guilty feminist on shame and women which is interesting do you think that means that they listen to uh Joy's episode then oh definitely sure that's right Grace I'm sure that's exactly what happened anyway uh back in the real world whose interview we're listening to this time this month, we're listening to an interview with Dr. Sanji Pereira. She's somebody that I met when she was doing um, some research at the University of Birmingham in the, brace yourself for this, the Edward Cadbury Centre for the Public Understanding of Religion. And uh, the research project she was doing was called the Minority Anglican Project, which was all about how church navigates race you know, as we know, incredibly relevant to today. And um, the, she's starting to produce the um, the findings of that project as well, which we'll link to um, so people can have a bit of a read. But yeah, a really quite large scale project that she was doing, which she'll talk about in the interview and really, really fascinating stuff about race and the, um, the Anglican church. It was brilliant. Okay. Shall we have a listen then? Yeah, let's. Sanji, thank you so much for uh, coming to the Recovering God podcast. How are you? I'm good and thank you for having me. I'm really excited to to hear what you have to say about <laughs> me too. Recovering God. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about yourself so that we understand who you are for any listeners who don't know. Um, maybe we could start by talking about your Christian faith and how that's been shaped and a bit about your history. Okay. Um, so I was born in Sri Lanka, um, in the Church of Ceylon. Um, I was born to um, two very strong, faithful traditions. My mum was Anglican, um, in the Church of Ceylon, obviously, and my dad was uh, from a very strong Roman Catholic family. And those two traditions clashed enormously. And um, so when, when I was born, I was brought home, mum was still in hospital, And um, I was baptised in the Roman Catholic Church first. (laughs) And uh, my dad very conveniently forgot to tell (gasps) mum that I was baptised. And and, um, I was baptised as Anne-Marie Crisante in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not even, you know, under a completely different name. And then I was baptised in the Anglican Church by my mum. So... um, when the two families found out, um, there was uh, enormous controversy at home and um, there was uh, a lot of um, discourse about 
what was canonically acceptable. Um, so it's very young to be faced with all this. Mm. And um, and I was a part of the discussion. I know it, my parents and my grandparents didn't talk over me on this. I was, um, from a very young age, I was held accountable to, to which side <laughs> I chose. <laughs> and I remember being really upset once, um, you know, about did I belong to a particular church? Which church did I belong to? Because I, I went to church with my mum to the Anglican church, but in primary school, I went to a Roman Catholic church um, school. And uh, my mum said, in her great wit and wisdom, she said, just know that you belong to an eccentric communion that, you know, two church communities that will fight to keep you in theirs. And there's no greater blessing than that. So um, I have I have kept that to heart in in all the the difficulties I have um, and the challenges and the frustrations I've faced with church mm-hmm. with ecclesia. I have always held that particular bit of wisdom that all that comes from a place of love. All the arguments about the theology, about liturgy, about tradition, all that comes because they care enough to include you, they want you to belong to them. And there's no greater gift than that. Mm. And so what do you identify as today? So um, when I was about six, my parents who couldn't pick and who were trying to get out of trouble between the two families said to me, you pick. Um, when you were six? Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because I had to pick a school. Um, oh. So I had to pick, um, so I'd done this at a first day in primary uh, or pre-primary school reception. And um, I had to pick a school. And uh, so I picked the school that my best friend, who is my first cousin, went to, which happened to be the Anglican school. I'm sure that that had a lot more weighing in than the liturgy <laughs> or the ecclesiology <laughs> of a particular tradition. And then I spent the rest of my life defending that choice. So from a very, very, very young age, I spent a lot of time reading uh, about church history, understanding why we did what we did. Uh, I was sort of almost obsessive as a child about understanding church. And I think that came from being constantly challenged from my, uh, particularly from my Roman Catholic family about why I picked the Anglican tradition. It also meant that partly because of the nature of Sri Lankan um, Christian traditions. We, we almost memorised the Bible, so it meant that from a very young age, um, you know, it was a very biblically grounded um, tradition. Um, so, yes, I would call myself Anglican, despite the fact that we're currently sitting in Newman House. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, worship with the community here, which is a wonderful Roman Catholic community mm. um, every Sunday. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So yes. my um, some of those Ro- Roman Catholic roots have come back to haunt <laughs> me this year. <laughs> and would you call yourself a Christian feminist? So um, I would call myself a feminist. However... Um, I think I'd call myself a womanist because feminism has done less for black women. And if you look at the history of the feminist movement, black women have been sort of served up at the altar um, so that, you know, some of the arguments if you look at uh, feminism is that if women didn't have that authority, they'd be subject to the authority of the black slaves in a household, particularly in, in American feminism. But 
you know, if you're generally speaking about the ideals of feminism, of course, I'm, I would call myself a feminist. But it is something that I think you can't separate out. The intersection matters to me. And um, being a black woman, race is necessarily so deeply tied into gender attributes that might hold one back that I, I, I would marry the two of them up. But I must say that I'm, I, in terms of the church, for me, activism in terms of race is much more important to me than activism in terms of gender. It's not because I think that we're gender equal in the church, but there's a much more complex power paradigm in terms of church, in, in terms of feminism. Mm. And um, unlike in other spaces, while we have a patriarchal structure, church is run by women. You know, that the real dynamism of church is run by women. Men have quite often have headship, but it's almost nominal sometimes. It's what I write, what I call the spire church model, where the actual, um, the spire church model is um, when usually a male clergyman is the clanging bell <laughs> of the church. <laughs> And the actual running, the body of the church is mostly female in, in a lot mm. of Anglican churches. So when I talk about church, I tend to talk about the Anglican church. Okay. Quite often it's, it's, you know, in Anglican churches, it's, uh, there's no more representation of women. And whenever a man walks through the door, they're just snapped up and people want to know whether they want to be a sides person or a reader immediately. Mm. Whereas a woman might be in a church and, she might be asked. I get asked whether um, I'd make curry quite often. Right. <laughs> uh, I haven't the first clue of how to make curry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there are clearly racial overtones to that question. Oh, <laughs> of course. I sit on um, a number of trustee boards across the country. I've never been asked to be in the PCC. I've mm. never been asked to... Um, do a reading until I came to Birmingham. Um, I must say that my lovely, what I would consider my parish uh, vicar, the first thing she asked me was, you know, would you do a reading? And I just thought, oh, after like years of never being asked, I've, you know, I've been asked and I'm wearing my contact lenses the wrong way around. <laughs> but, you know, I do get asked um, to do Sunday school and I've done Sunday school. Um, I get asked to do youth work, um, which is my strength. I'm not sure Sunday school is particularly my strength, but I don't see it as a gendered question necessarily. Mm. But yes, when, when someone asks me to, you know, um, make curry or something like that, uh, there is a sort of slightly tickled, amused part of me that thinks, would you have asked me that if I was a white man? Or even a white woman. Or even a white woman, yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't think I've ever been asked to make curry. <laughs> Trust my ability to make curry, obviously. Very offended. <laughs> So as a six-year-old, you were made to choose between uh, Catholicism and Anglicanism. And, and now here you are in front of me in Birmingham. So what, what has taken you from six-year-old in Sri Lanka to a woman in Birmingham today? So one of the, one of the things I didn't tell you about this, this particular um, six-year-old <laughs> <laughs> worshipping in a little, little church by the beach, an Anglican church, which was actually built by my direct ancestors wow. <laughs> in um, 
56, if I remember that right. Wow. And then um, I went to university in Australia, so I served in the Anglican Church in Australia. Mm. And I did some youth work there. And then I came to Liverpool in the late 90s. And um, I went to a high church, which was very much like my high church back in Sri Lanka. So I felt deeply connected. And another thing that sort of, it was important to me was this sort of sense of communion um, that that people who come from across the Anglican communion bring in. A lot of people ask me, you know, especially in terms of the research I do, uh, if things are so bad, why do you not just simply go to a different church? And mm. people have said this over and over again. And I suppose it's because Anglicanism is a language. It's my first language it is deeply built into my bones mm. so it is not possible to think oh I don't like you know what I'm experiencing in this particular church and for me as somebody who's served in uh, the Anglican church in Sri Lanka in Australia in Pakistan when I was on, on mission in the Afghan border and across the UK one church and its idiosyncrasies is not the sum total of the Anglican Church. And this is, I think, true of a lot of um, communion Anglicans who come from across the planet. So you have a very uh, a global perspective on Anglicanism that actually a lot of Church of England attendees and parishioners in the UK born and bred would not have. Do you find that that helps you when you are faced with issues of maybe patriarchy and uh, racism even do you find that perspective is helpful i think that um it gives me a sort of a bigger picture a bigger concept of my faith Mm. and um, it diminishes the differences so the wider your experiences are that you you start to see a, a prototype of prejudice and it's, it becomes not just about the specific little bit of prejudice, prejudice you might come across in its particular expressions or particular context in that church because you can see similarities across the world mm. and um Prejudice in this part of the world, in this particular church, might be about liturgy, it might be about race. Somewhere else, it might be something entirely different. But prejudice is prejudice. Its its shape mm. is similar. It just depends on what's important to, to people or how they differentiate themselves. Well, and that's hugely relevant because at the time of recording, uh, Synod have, have come out and um, one of the outcomes has been a, um, a commitment to addressing racism in the church and uh, a commitment to putting more research into that. I've seen on Twitter mixed uh, reactions to that and I well maybe won't ask you what you think about that <laughs> no no you can you can ask me I was delighted mm-hmm. I I was in tears um I just you know I was watching Synod throughout and then I had to go um, do some teaching so I missed the bit when they when the uh, archbishop apologized so I, I re-ran that uh, that particular bit mm-hmm. and uh, I was in tears it was a particularly important moment in the history of the Church of England for me. I have spent the last year writing to what felt like the entire Church of England. So one of the things I did as a part of our research was sit and harvest emails from um, from church um, parish websites. To me, you know, when you when you felt like you know the names of every warden, PCC member and clergy person, curate, Suddenly when I was doing that, I realized the Anglican Church is a lot smaller. You know, that was in my head because suddenly instead of being an amorphous number of people, 
these were people I knew by name. This is a family, this is a, a community, and that means something. So when the apology came and um, 295 members of Synod all voted, that meant something. <laughs> So what would you say was the most significant thing that was said then at the most recent synod? So it's interesting you should say that. For me, the most significant thing that was said was, I mean, the Archbishop's um, apology was very moving and everything said there was wonderful. But for me, uh, my um, former incumbent from Liverpool, who is now the Archdeacon of, of um, Liverpool, spoke and he said, this is not about other people, it's about us. These are our people. This is what black people have longed to hear. This is what matters to us. So the apology was wonderful, but the apology doesn't necessarily bridge that gap. And of course, a lot of black clergy spoke of their experiences. And, and of course, that was very significant. And then, you know, there was other people who spoke and they said, yes, we need to do something about it. But all that doesn't take you as far as somebody saying you are a part of us. And I think that's the, the, the most significant thing that the Church of England can say to, to people who are different, whether they're, you know, whether it's racialized differences or whether it's any other kind of difference. It, it, it's belonging we seek. And, um, you know, in the minority ethnic, um, uh, the minority Anglicanism project, that was one of the things we measured um, we measured belonging, so we measured a social identity score, which is really about measuring how strongly you feel you belong. So this is, this is um, we identified belonging as one of the most important things that black people have been saying for many, many, many generations. <laughs> mm. So Sanjay, you've recently conducted a large-scale research project into the experiences of minority ethnic Anglicans. Is there anything that you can tell us about uh, the unique challenges faced by minority ethnic women in churches that struck you? So let me start at the beginning there. So what we did was really look at how church navigates race rather than just looking at the experiences of minority ethnic Anglicans. So the reality is black people have been writing about their experiences, so there's no need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> um, there were five different aspects to the, the research. The first was to look at what black people have said their experiences were, their interpretations were, and their suggestions of, of other solutions might be uh, to the problems they saw in church in terms of race. So uh, we did a thematic analysis of black theology. Uh, then we did an ecclesiological analysis of just the Church of England. So the, the thematic analysis on black theology was was wider um, because it looked at um, the black experience in the UK, but also in America, we looked at, uh, you know, it was of the parameters of um, what we analysed was very, very wide. The ecclesiological analysis was specific to the Church of England. We looked at what specific events um, and what specific policy decisions have shaped the church in terms of race. So we explored the racialized stakeholders of the Church of England, whether it was um, our support of slavery, whether it was our 
stakeholders, financial stakeholders, particularly in apartheid, to even more recently, um, you know, our sort of hosting of Rusi and things like that um, um, in terms of the arms trade, because again, um, necessarily the people who suffer from this, from the arms trade, are, are people who are, are people of colour in these societies. So um, then we did a qualitative interview study, which was specific to the Diocese of Birmingham. Um, and that was really to, to come to the nitty gritty of exactly what about, you know, the, the, the experience of uh, people of colour in the Church of England was and, you know, what they felt that the burning issues were. And that felt very sort of almost um, poetically in um, in a sort of a, a rhythm that matched, that was parallel to, that was symbiotic with the black theology uh, thematic analysis, which I thought was interesting. And then we did an enormous quantitative study and that asked lots of questions. It wasn't gender specific. Gender wasn't a particularly issue that we focused on. One of the questions was of all the kinds of othering that we do in the Church of England. We wanted to know whether race was more acute a problem than any other issue in the Church of England. You know, it was it the most significant? Because, of course, if you speak to people in the Church of England, they'll say, oh, I've always thought of the Church of England as really inclusive. And, you know, it's always white people <laughs> be saying this. I have never heard a, a person of colour sense. <laughs> But it also means that quite often people have, because our theology is a broader spectrum, have come from churches where there's a narrow spectrum of theology and felt that the Church of England is much more welcoming and inclusive. Mm. Um, and they will always feel that race is not an issue because it doesn't affect them. I've heard many theologians say, well, class is the great divide in the Church of England. And there's some truth to that, but you know, the reality is you can't separate it out. But our real question was how significant a problem was the, the colour of your skin in the way you interacted mm. with church. So we, we measured belonging. We measured um, cognitive dissonance. So we looked at lots of psychological, because I'm a cognitive psychologist, mm. we looked at sort of specific types of cognitive dissonance. So if in your head your view of church is necessarily white middle class, you don't quite know how to fit in that black person. If you're, um, So one of the things that, for an example, our black clergy said was some people don't want to accept communion from a black person uh, or to be married by a black person because it just won't look right in the pictures. Now, that comes from a particular view of what a, a clergy person... I mean, this is true of gender as well, you know, um, uh, especially from people who aren't particularly Christian but come to church to be married and they'll see a female vicar and they'll think, oh, but I'd like a proper vicar. <laughs> and you'll you hear a lot of female vicars say this, um, you know, I don't know what to say to that. Mm. You know, I am a proper vicar. I have been through ordination yeah. training. I am ordained. Sometimes the external view of the church generally and the Church of England specifically um, is quite tight. It's, it's sometimes um, coloured by what you see in the media. So if you weren't church going as a child and everything you know about the Church of England is from, I don't know, Midsummer Murders or, you know, um, 
not Coronation Street, what's Emmerdale. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, sort of, if, mm. then, then you have a particular view of what the Church of England is like. Sandy, can I just clarify something with you? Um, you've been using the word black a lot and um, you've used it in terms of uh, black theology and um, as an identifying marker for people. And I think uh, for many of our listeners that will equate to Afro-Caribbean or African um, people. Is that how you're using it or you're using it in a different way? So I would self-identify as a black woman and I'm using that um, as a political term to mean a person of colour. But I am aware that I use it interchangeably sometimes. (laughs) Um, So this was something that we struggled with in the research. Um, I think the the post was advertised as uh, BEAM Research Fellow uh, and then we didn't like the word beam, so then we wanted to change it to BME. Uh, and then we didn't like that. So we went, you know, this people of colour, this minority ethnic. There is no correct terms, and these are all sort of overlapping concepts. Um, I had this problem when we I run an um, organisation called the Athena Project for young um women of colour in higher education and the first time we met at a trustee board I think we spent about three hours arguing about whether it should be BAME or BME or minority ethnic or people of colour. I don't think that uh, we have any easy answers. I'm happy for it, it to mean what is visibly the other. Countries like Canada use the term visible minority Now, the problem with that is that immediately excludes anyone who is blind. So it's Mm. a very complex issue. Mm. But when I use the word black, I mean people of colour generally. Anyone who can be identified as different from that white us in, in the church context particularly. Thank you. Can you tell me what your image of God is and what you call God? So, um... And this might label me a heretic. <laughs> so um, there's a one of my favourite um, R.S. Thomas poems, say, uh, because I, I, I really relate to R.S. Thomas, this sort of relational dissonance. You know, you've, when you have this concept of God that comes from Sunday school and media, and which is a sort of white male beardy person sitting on the, on the clouds. And then there is that um, almost teleological concept of God, this this divine that speaks to you. Um, and, and, you know, as a psychologist, that sounds insane. You know, we, we have all sorts of ways of explaining religious experience or, or supernatural experience. And, um, and I always, always struggle. So, for example, if you're somebody who sees patterns uh, emerging in your life, that points to intelligent design. So creation, the, the environment shows me intelligent design. And if you pray and you have your prayers answered and you see intelligence, empathy and design and personality in your interaction with the universe, a psychologist might say, well, that's just the Barnum effect because human beings naturally and necessarily look for patterns. So um, there's an Aris Thomas poem that expresses this beautifully uh, for me. You show me two faces, that of a flower opening and of a fist contracting, like the gripping of ice. 
You speak to me with two voices, one thundering in the ear's drum, the other one mistakable for silence. Father, I said, domesticating an enigma, and as though to humour me, you came, but there are precipices. And it goes on, but, you know, that sort of consciousness of presence in your life, an ebb and flow, because if that presence was with you all the time, we would not notice it. So there is absence, even as it was with, with Jesus, you know, there's a sort of presence that is not possible to put into form, to put into a type of personality or morality. Um, it is power. So you can't assign a gender to it or uh, any state of being to it. It becomes impossible to explain it. And yet that is exactly what we are asked to do, mm. go forth and tell. So how do you speak of it? How do you speak of it except in poetry and and confusion? Mm. Um, so for me, my understanding of God is constantly changing. It is constantly telling me the bits where I got it wrong, and that's okay. And I think as a church, that that's that's what we're called to do. And it's a as any living relationship, it is is something that's dynamic, that is enigmatic, that is impossible to put into words. <laughs> There are times in our lives where we are called to almost name God, when mm. we pray sometimes, when we pray out loud in groups, yes. <laughs> we have to put these things into words. And so when you're in those situations, what language naturally comes to you? It might be from your upbringing, it, it might be something you've, you've come to since then. So if you're asking me, do I use gendered pronouns for God? I'm afraid I do. Not because I believe God is male or female. <laughs> um, that in itself is a, a, a lost concept. Um, but because I grew up with the Book of Common Prayer, it's ingrained into me. So I'm somebody who deeply loves the Book of Common Prayer, but sees its flaws and its limitations and its, you know, even racialized takeholds. But that's okay for me. Mm. Um, if it was good enough in the sort of fallen and broken, um, you know, concepts, a couple of hundred years ago and, and it worked for all these people, that's okay. Uh, but that should obviously come with that consciousness that we do not um, let that shaping of gendered language shape our theology and that's easier to say than, than to do. Mm. So I, I pray Father God, but sometimes I consciously pray Mother God and my experience of how I say Father God is very different of how I say Mother God. I had a wonderful father. He was, I think, everything that um, would make a great model for a, you know, the concept of a divine father. So the concept is not problematic for me. Mm. Um, I also had parents who weren't particularly... Um, who didn't conform to gender stereotypes. So my mother is a strong one, but my mother is that. So it's all right for me to to, uh, <laughs> to 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 sort of say Father God because my father had plenty of maternal and paternal characteristics and so did my mother. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Sanji, now the horrible question that we ask all of our guests. What do you think is the most important issue affecting Christian women today? This is a really hard question. And in reality, I'd like a couple of weeks, months to think about it. (laughs) I think um, the difficulty for Christian women primarily is the gender imbalance in a church that is within a patriarchal structure, because it just makes everything so much more complicated. It means that um, a lot of the productivity, a lot of the movement, a lot of the service of the church, the running of the church comes from women. And perhaps that's biblically appropriate if you if you look at Christ's ministry, who were the first to hear, who were the first to, who were at the foot of the cross there. But, um, you know, joking aside, I think that there is this sort of double burden of church would fall apart if suddenly women stopped going. Um, if you look at numbers in church, particularly, particularly in the Church of England, uh, but also in, in other churches. And yet we're still quite a patriarchal church. So it's almost like we have to be doubly strong. We have to get it done. We have to, to move the church. And at the same time, let the men take the credit for it. <laughs> I mean, I see this. I see this among friends who are, say, clergy spouses, particularly female clergy spouses. A vicar's wife does so much sometimes, but they only get you know, criticism and and they they get a lot of grief. Quite often the clergy man get is the tin god and gets all the praise. Mm. Um and that's how church works. Uh, of course, you know, it's it's a much more complex picture. I know uh plenty of clergymen who've been bullied to death by uh female wardens or mm. a female all female PACC and that happens too. Mm. But um the the shape of the church, the lack of balance, um, and the patriarchy of the church are at loggerheads, and that is a, a significant issue for women. Sanji, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. So, Alison, what did you think? I'd like to sit down with her and have a meal with her and ask her lots of questions. She's fascinating, isn't she? Mm. And sounds lovely. She's got a very quiet voice. I tried to listen to the edit previously before today, walking up the road, and the traffic was so loud I couldn't hear her. So that was sad. So I had to stop. (laughs) And um, Very gently spoken. Yes, yes. Absolutely sounds lovely. I've never met her, but I've been following her on Twitter for... It must have been when she started trying to get people to do the um, Minority Anglican Project to get people for that. That's when I I found her on Twitter. Anyway, yeah, great. I thought she was really interesting. There's some words that she used, though, Grace. Here we go. So, ecclesiology. It's about the church, isn't it? Yeah, it's an ology. So it's the study of church, basically. Are you old enough to remember the Maureen Lippmann advert? No. Oh, my goodness. Was it 1970? No. 1970s, I suppose. Maureen Lippmann, she used to say, he's done an ology. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm just so old and you're so young. Anyway, moving on. Right, so qualitative and quantitative are much more my educational background, so I can do those. So, um, Quantitative is about quantity, numbers, 
so when you're measuring something, number to, numbers and qualitative, it's a great word, isn't it? Is when you um, haven't got any numbers and you're just kind of talking about it. So there's some lovely words. The other one, which I had to look up, was cognitive dissonance. Okay, so cognition I know. Mm-hmm. Dissonance, I kind of had an idea, but put the two together, I hadn't got a clue, I had to look it up. So how, what do you make of that? The only understanding I've got of it is it's sort of the feeling of discomfort that you get or the conflict that you get when two of your beliefs or actions don't match or don't fit together properly. You know, like we always hold conflicting beliefs and values and things like that, but quite often we can get away with it and we don't have to uh, answer to them. But I think cognitive dissonance, I think, is the feeling that you get when suddenly they. they clash yeah or it's highlighted to you that they don't quite work together is that what you yeah yeah you, it kind of unsettles you really it's like it, uncomfortable feelings of oh my goodness do I really think this did anything particularly strike you when you listened back afterwards mm, so uh, there's something that actually Sanji's asked me to clarify should we start with that yeah um, as we're going for definitions and <laughs> all that kind of thing yeah. uh, we talked in the interview about the way that she uses the word black and she uses it in a very political sense to identify herself as a South Asian woman. But we did the interview back in February. This was a long time ago before everything (laughs) that's going on, before the pandemic had really started to affect us in a big way and before the sort of Black Lives Matter protests and everything that's, that's resulted from that. And she pointed out that actually if we had that interview today, she probably wouldn't have used the same definition because it is in the same way that people are talking about the BAME label as problematic, the use of black as a a term to lump together any groups of people who aren't white, I suppose, is also problematic, which she she recognises and again would, would have used something different if we did it now. But I was going to originally point towards a lady called Mukti Barton. She's uh, Indian Bengali British. Uh, she used to be the Bishop's Advisor for Black and Asian Minorities in the Diocese of Birmingham. And she's written a book called Rejection, Resistance and Resurrection, Speaking Out on Racism in the Church. And this was a few years ago now, but it's it's completely relevant and has so many um, personal stories in it and is well worth reading and we can link to it as well. But she uses the term black as well for herself um, as an Indian Bengali British woman and she explains it in that book as well in a bit more detail so um, I just thought it was worth pointing that out that um, Sanji's aware of the that it can be problematic Mm. um, particularly in the current climate because she doesn't want to suggest that the experience of African-American or black British people is the same as that of Asian or uh, other minority ethnic people in the UK so yeah, just just context, I think, for the that use of the term mm. is important. We're all in a kind of ongoing situation here where we're trying to learn and um, challenge ourselves and um, challenge other people. Because Sharon Prentice used um, a couple of episodes back, she used people of colour, didn't she? Mm. I think with people of colour, with BAME, with all of this, it, it just lumps people together. And, and there's probably a time and a place for terms that, that you basically, you don't want to just say non-white because then that centralises whiteness um, and others, everybody else. I saw a, um, a post on social media, I can't remember, talking about um, somebody saying, don't call me BAME. 
because of the othering that it does, which is helpful. We've just got to keep working on it. And I think, it, and again, it was Sharon Prentice's interview where she said, you know, we need to keep talking about it and talking to other people and not ignoring the issues, but working on it and not feeling guilt, but being able to actually move forward and say sorry when we need to and, and kind of talk about it. So this is really helpful because that builds on that, doesn't it? This this builds on that um, yeah. beautifully. Was there anything that stood out to you? Well, the first thing that stood out to me was that she had to choose between being an Anglican and a Roman Catholic at age of six. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was amazed. <laughs> That's quite phenomenal. We are not going to decide. You're going to have to decide. I thought that was great. And that she would, did research. I mean, it's like, she's a born researcher, <laughs> obviously. She's phenomenal. and she chose the school that her friend went to as well which I think is how most of us would have made that decision yeah um the other thing that struck me which she said a couple of times in a different uh, in different sections was that she talked about churches being run by women and headed up by men but being held together by women I thought it was a great quote which was church would fall apart if women stopped going yet we're still a patriarchal church She talked. To, she called it the um, the spire church model. I don't know yeah. if that's her term or someone else's term. Yeah. And with men being the clanging bell at the top, <laughs> but women being the uh, the body of the church. When we went to the Deborah gathering, somebody asked that question of: Is there a place for women to um, uh, to protest? I suppose their treatment in some churches by refusing to participate. <laughs> And imagine, I suppose, what would happen if um, if they did that. Be an interesting experiment. Uh, the other thing that that was interesting that she said was about um, she called it synod, but she means something called general synod, doesn't she? The the decision making body of the Church of England um, and the Archbishop apologising for. Well, actually, she didn't say what the Archbishop had been apologising for, but I'm assuming it's the way that uh, people of colour had been treated in the Church of England historically mm-hmm. and how actually acknowledging that was so healing and, and kind of the start of a, of a new phase. Mm. I liked how she isn't sceptical about it. She's very open to what's been said, to the apology and moved to tears by it and, um, and trusting that, that that apology will lead to something more, which I think is considering the research project that she did and considering her own experiences in the Church of England and racism that she's experienced, I think that's very hopeful that she is so trusting of that and has hope herself that that will lead to more. I thought that was very encouraging. And when you asked her about what did you find, she she identified that belonging was really important, that Mm. people wanted to belong. It reminds me of um, something that I heard, I think, was about how identity is the kind of key thing, the core of who we are, and that if we're going to be kind of personally attacked about anything as a, as a Christian, as an individual, it will be about our sense of identity and belonging because it's at the core of who we are. So I thought that was an interesting thing because I think that's where all, our, all of our vulnerabilities lie. If we don't feel valued, we're not going to belong. Definitely. What did you make of her image of God and the poem that she shared? Uh, Yeah, I didn't get it. It's a poem, so I'm sure there are multiple um, ways of interpreting it. The way that I heard it was 
that there's a duality to God. There's an ebb and flow to God. There's a softness and a strength. And there is shouting God and there is silent God. And um, there's, there was a bit about calling God Father and then as if to humour me, God comes. That idea that we use words and images of God and God comes to us anyway, even though we're not getting it right, even though it's not quite perfect, God will still come and um, engage with us. Um, But she was saying part of her experience and part of her journey of her image of God and how she engages with God has been constantly recognising where she gets it wrong and that being okay. And she referred to that as being something that we're called to do. And that led me to think that's another thing that the church as a whole is called to do, isn't it? Not all these things that that churches are suddenly becoming aware of that we have been getting wrong. Another of the things in that is the way that we talk about God and the way that we present God to people. And that can be a race thing, that can be a gender thing, that can be all kinds of different things. When we hold on too tightly to one or two particular images of God, and aren't willing to bend and accept different images. In fact, Justin Welby on Twitter, I saw he, he'd been asking people to share images or their favorite images of Jesus from around the world. And one of the artists that Sanji shared is a woman called Harmonia Rosales. And if people haven't seen her artwork, you have to Google it. You have to have a look. She is a fantastic painter and she does paintings in the kind of classical European I guess what would they be like renaissance type yeah 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 but rather than the usual kind of white cherubs and white Mary and Jesus and all that kind of thing they're black people in um in the the paintings and so she's done um a painting called the birth of Eve which is um obviously there's that famous painting with the sort of naked Adam white Adam lying on the ground and pointing up at God and again white beardy God with all his cherubs pointing down fingers nearly touching and she's done that with Eve a black woman and God uh, another black woman surrounded by black cherubs and pointing down to each other. And it, they're brilliant. Like you could spend quite a few hours going through her work. You just had a look, Alison. What do you make of them? I think they're phenomenal. I mean, that one that you're talking about is is a kind of replica of the Sistine Chapel image on the ceiling, or part of it, I should say. I think. I think that's where it's from. And I mean, talk about cognitive dissonance, which you were talking about before. You know, they're they really make you think about why is this going to make somebody feel uncomfortable or comfortable? Why is this challenging? I think they're beautiful. I'm really, really, I'm going to have to do some major work on looking at these because I think they're fantastic. She's done a great one as well. Of um, uh, It's the classic Jesus on the cross image, but it's um, a, a black woman instead of the usual white man. With black women sitting around the cross and looking, mm-hmm. yeah, phenomenal. Uh, we talked about this last time, didn't we, about how good it is to see pieces of artwork from different groups of people so that we don't try and stereotype God into kind of one form or um, one skin colour. It, it's it's interesting that Justin Welby, obviously very high up, very mainstream, <laughs> has asked people for their images of Jesus, not as a white man, um, quite rightly. It's not something that people often do ask for images that we're not used to seeing in certainly in the UK in white majority churches. So yeah, we need more of it. 
We do. We need to we need to put these up more so that there's more variety. Although um, some people will say we shouldn't have any images. But I, for some people, they're really helpful to help them into prayer and to blow the stereotype of what God is. The images we have around us in a lot of traditional churches, so stained glass windows and painting, we have such a history in Europe of white Bible characters in our artwork that it's almost not enough to say, oh, well, we can't have an image of God. We don't have an image of God because we do. It's there. We have a history of it. It's in our brains, whether we want it to be or not. And so I do see the benefit of trying to redress the balance. She talked about supporting the arms trade, you know, went to the Church of England, invested in all sorts of things, including, you know, obviously slavery. And she talked about investing in the arms trade and that it's primarily uh, people of colour who suffer, which, of course, is absolutely true. But it was good to kind of hear it said because you make you think, oh, yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, And the other thing I was going to say about what we were talking about before, Jesus, of course, wasn't white. And I know that's obvious, but it needs saying, doesn't it? Jesus was not the skin colour of Robert Powell. Do you remember Robert Powell? Yeah. In the in the old film, Jesus of Nazareth. You're, you're old enough for that, thank goodness for that. So I, that, that needs to be said because we forget. It's like I heard somebody talking about, they were talking to an American about God. And obviously God was a white man. And, and they, were, they were saying to this person, well, obviously God isn't a white man. And the person's going, of course, of course God's a white man. And no, no, no. <laughs> um, she talked about what she called God and she said that she called God Father. And I thought this was interesting. She said that she, she's okay to call God Father because she'd had a positive experience of what fatherhood was for her in relationship to her own dad which is exactly the same or very similar to what Elaine Storkey said. A few people have said that, actually. Yeah. Interesting. So that li- there's a link there. People are, are making a link between it's okay to call God Father if you've had a positive relationship with your own father. So we have a problem, therefore, and I think probably Natalie Collins would have quite a lot to say about this, going back to Natalie Collins. If a third of women are abused and a smaller percentage of men, usually by men, then actually the term father is is just not helpful. And saying that, you know, people can have healing or, you know, you know, in order to call God father is also not helpful. So actually keeping pushing that father of God without using a variety of other terms is unhelpful for a huge number of people. I wonder how many churches have that conversation about the language that they use and who it could be harming. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's about all I've got to say, Alison. How about you? Yeah, I think that's it. I think if if we could just kind of when this is all over and we can, you know, meet people again, I, I want to invite, I invite her for dinner. I think she'd come for dinner. Could we have a meeting like in a coffee shop or something? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure she would. Right. Okay. Well, it's been lovely. And uh, it was a fabulous interview. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, on Instagram at Recovering underscore God or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com.